KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome to another edition of the KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. ready for a damn fine cup of coffee and some cherry pie? Well, I certainly am. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. With the return of Twin Peaks and a revival screening of Fire Walk With Me here in San Diego at Landmark's Ken Cinema this weekend, I decided it was time to dig into the archives for an interview with David Lynch. I've always been a fan of David Lynch. I was hooked from a racer head on, and even when his films disappoint or baffle me, they're a million times more interesting than anything else out there. The term visionary is often tossed around and usually assigned to people wholly undeserving, like Zack Snyder. But Lynch is a truly visionary director, and his stamp can be felt on every frame of the film and in the soundtrack. I had the privilege of seeing the Twin Peaks pilot before most people did because I was at the 1989 Telluride Film Festival where they held a late night premiere of the feature length pilot. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. 54 degrees on a slightly overcast day. Weatherman said rain. You get paid that kind of money for being wrong 60% of the time and be working. And mileage is 79,345. Gauges on reserve. Riding on fumes here. I got to tank up when I get into town. Remind me to tell you how much that is. Lunch was uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was. Uh, Tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Okay. Looks like I'll be meeting up with the uh, Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Shouldn't be too hard to remember that. We'll be at the Calhoun Memorial Hospital. Guess we're going to go up to intensive care and take a look at that girl that crawled down the railroad tracks off the mountain. When I finish here, I'll be checking into a motel. I'm sure the sheriff will be able to recommend a clean place, reasonably priced. What I need, a clean place, reasonably priced. No one at the festival knew exactly what they were in for. And when the film ended, not with the revelation of who killed Laura Palmer, but rather on a cliffhanger as a hand pulled out Laura's locket from under a rock. You could hear an audible gasp and even some boos from the audience. And what made things even worse was that we saw the pilot in September of 1989, and the show would not be officially picked up for broadcast by ABC until April of 1990. Coming Sunday, April 8th. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. I had to wait seven long months before I could revisit Twin Peaks and get another taste of that outrageous, audacious, insanely weird soap opera. 
That a major network would even consider running Lynch's show was remarkable on so many levels. It was also something that simply couldn't last. I knew that at some point, nervous network executives would start suggesting that Lynch turn down the weird and not be so ambiguous. And I also knew that if the network started to lean on Lynch to make changes, that he would grow frustrated and rebel. All those things happened, and Twin Peaks lasted a mere two seasons. In terms of episodes, it was really only a season and a half. Lynch ended the series with a truly bizarre episode that raised more questions than it answered, and that memorably turned one character, Joan Chen's Josie Packard, into a knob on a nightstand. At least I think that's the piece of furniture it was on. On one level, I felt like Lynch had taken out his anger at the networks on his fans and was flipping everyone off with his crazy finale. But on another level, I totally got it. And the eccentricity of that finale was just what I expected from the visionary mind of David Lynch. Lynch would return to Twin Peaks in 1992 with the prequel, Fire Walk With Me. There's no other person who could have known where it was. Did Bobby give you this? Or is there someone new? Laura disappeared. It's just me now. You made me write it all down. Don't do that. She doesn't like that. How do you know what she likes? The film screens Saturday at midnight and Sunday at 11 a.m. at Landmark's Ken Cinema. And Cinema Junkie is a proud sponsor of the Midnight Movies at the Ken Cinema. That film explored the last seven days of Laura's life. Lynch claims that the film is very important to understanding his latest Twin Peaks outing, the 18-episode Showtime series, Twin Peaks The Return. Hello, Ashton. I'll see you again in Twin I have to confess, I watched the premiere of the new series while suffering a cold and taking medication. And I don't know if that slightly feverish state was the perfect way to watch The Return, or if it made the show even more hallucinogenic than even Lynch had intended. Listen to the sounds. I loved the first episode, part one of the premiere. It was exactly what I was hoping for. It revisited the show and the characters that I had come to love with just the right mix of familiarity and surprise. Hello. I'd like to see Sheriff Truman. Which one? Which one? Sheriff Truman isn't here. Well, do you know which one? It could make a difference. Uh, no, ma'am. One is sick, and the other one is fishing. Uh, it could make a difference. It's about insurance. I'm not sure I will be able to help you. I'd like to see Sheriff Truman. It was as unconventional and genre-defying as the original series. Part two was also brilliant. But when I hit episode three... I don't know if I had entered a sort of delirium from medication, lack of sleep, and a cold, or if that state had been brought on by watching the truly trippy third installment where all sense of plot and form seemed to be thrown out the window. What the hell? 
The other cameras saw nothing. And as soon as this thing moved, it disappeared. But could I really expect anything else from David Lynch? So, I'm hooked again on Twin Peaks The Return. Director Cole, on your phone, it's Cooper. What? On your phone, it's Cooper. Albert. So to pay tribute to Lynch, I went back into the archives and found an interview from 2005 when Lynch was on a speaking tour to promote his Transcendental Meditation program. I had interviewed him on other occasions, but I have not been able to track down those audio files or the ones from my interviews with Dean Stockwell and Kyle McLaughlin about Lynch directing Blue Velvet. But this interview, even though Lynch said he didn't want to talk about his films, is revealing of how Lynch thinks and works. And he did end up talking about his movies. I think, can you tell us, like, what you had for lunch or something so we can get a level on your voice and... I had some uh, grapefruit juice with spirulina and 10 almonds. So you're all revved up and fired to go, right? I'm ready to go. <laughs> ready to boogie. First of all, I understand that you dislike public speaking. So what is it that prompted you to go on the speaking tour? I, uh, there's been a new foundation formed, the David Lynch Foundation for Consciousness-Based Education and World Peace. We're on a tour to universities to talk about the foundation trying to raise enough money to uh, uh, bring Transcendental Meditation to any student who wants it. That's the goal of the foundation and the reason for the tour. Now, why was this so important to you to do this right now? A couple of years ago, maybe more than a couple of years ago, I heard about Maharishi's peace-creating groups and the technology to enliven this field of unity, pure consciousness, powerfully enough to bring peace to the world. It sounded even strange to me, but then I put that thought together with my experiences in meditation, and I said, you know, this is, this is it. And I thought it would happen. And when, when no one listened, or not enough people listened, I thought, if I get a chance to speak about it, I will. And then I also met children who had experienced or were experiencing consciousness-based education, and they have another expression, the proof is in the pudding, there I saw students radiating consciousness, truly happy from within, and doing so well that you just don't worry about them. They're self-sufficient powerhouses. And I, all this put together um, has... Um, motivated me to to speak about it. Now, when did you first learn about meditation and transcendental meditation and, and get involved in doing it yourself? I've been meditating twice a day for 32 years. And so I started on July 1st, 1973. And let's say, Bill, before the 70s, I had zero interest in meditation. I wasn't even so curious about it. But then I heard these phrases like, true happiness is not out there, true happiness lies within. You hear this word within quite often, and, I, and they don't tell you in that phrase where the within is, nor how to get there. And so I started thinking, maybe meditation is that way to go within, to dive within, and experience something that could lead to, you know, more and more happiness. I got a call. I started looking into different forms of meditation, got a call from my sister who said she'd started transcendental meditation. I heard a change in her voice 
and what she said about it, I said, that's it. That's the one I want. And I've been doing it ever since. Filmmaking can be very stressful. So does Transcendental Meditation help you to create a better shooting environment, a more relaxed environment on the set? Absolutely. And what you're saying is is um, very true. And many times uh, you hear stories where people, you know, do the opposite. There was an article recently in a paper about, you know, a business run, you know, purposefully on fear. And so they put so much fear on the employees, they think they're going to get more out of them. And imagine an employee working under fear and living a life like that. And fear has a way of turning itself into hate. And you hate to go to work. And then it has a way of turning itself into anger. And you almost be angry at your work. And I said, if I ran a set on fear, I wouldn't get 1% of what I get. So the more beautiful the atmosphere, the more you're going to get. People want to go the extra mile. And it's fun to work. And one of the things about diving within and experiencing that ocean of pure consciousness, it's also an ocean of pure bliss, intelligence, creativity. All these things start to blossom. And fear, anxieties, anger, those things start to recede in the light of this consciousness. So it's money in the bank. It's more fun to work. Ideas flow. Intuition grows. You know, the understanding starts to grow. Awareness. Beautiful things. Well, I've had a chance in the past to speak with Dean Stockwell and Kyle McLaughlin, and both of them told me how enjoyable it was to be on your sets and how kind of despite the seriousness and the darkness of your material sometimes that there was a real kind of lightness on, on the set itself. We have a good time going down the road together. And is it also that creative process that's enjoyable? When... When, when you have an actor, you know, I feel for actors uh, so much because they have to go out on a limb and make it real. And so you try to create an atmosphere where they feel so comfortable to let go and go deep, deep, deep into that character. And, and this is money in the bank. So then in a sense for, for the actors sometimes, even if they may not be actually practicing transcendental meditation, kind of the process that they're working through is, is similar in a certain way? Well, you know, they say we're, we're all like light bulbs, and, and consciousness is the, is the light from within. So the more consciousness you have, the more bliss you have, the more you radiate that. So, you know, this is the key to world peace, radiating so much of that that it actually brings harmony and coherence and peace to the world. So you can get more of it, you can radiate more of it, and everyone appreciates that. So now, if you're doing these meditation breaks twice a day, do you take them sometimes while you're on the set? And, and how does that affect the kind of the work environment there? Well, you know, like everybody to eats lunch, and I, uh, I meditate before I go to the set, and then I meditate at lunch uh, as well. So, and if I can't get that one in, I meditate after work. So it, it, it doesn't bother anybody. They're eating their lunch. Does that sometimes help you when you're, you're working in the sense of taking that break and slowing things down? Does that sometimes help you solve problems on the set? <laughs> it's, you're a beautiful questioner, I'll tell you. You really are. The, it, that ocean of consciousness is an ocean of solutions. And it's such an enjoyable experience to dive within. The splash, when you hit that ocean of consciousness, is bliss. And it's like 
when you come out, you feel blissful and, and wide awake and energetic and ready to go. And solutions come more easily. You know, a knowingness comes, an intuition comes. You can see a way to make it feel correct. And you can see more clearly when something is not quite right. It grows, it's, and it's a beautiful thing for filmmaking and really for any human being. Now, can you remember any specific time on a film or on a set where you were facing a problem or a challenge and you did take one of these breaks and came out kind of re-energized and were able to solve the problem? Well, many times this happens, but um, I'll tell you a story on Mulholland Drive, which was made for as a TV pilot. They hated the TV pilot, so I had an opportunity to make it into a feature, but I didn't have the ideas. And after a long negotiation between different companies to get the rights to make it into a feature, I suddenly was confronted with the fact that I didn't know what I was going to do. And one night, diving within, bingo, like a string of ideas flowed out, and there it was. Now that, to me, is <laughs> quite a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Now, meditation often gets stereotyped and sometimes even ridiculed by people, and I'm just wondering that, have you ever come up against that in, in, in the work you've been doing and, and with people you've worked on on films? Yeah, you know, like, um, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, things about something that's not known or not really part of our life. There's jokes about it, many, many misunderstandings about it, but I love my meditation, and I wouldn't ever want to miss one, and I've seen my life get better and better, and I've seen the lives of others get better and better. So if there's some, something is in a human being, when they hear about it maybe once, Maybe it's it's nothing. They hear about it again, or they see a friend change for the better. Something clicks somewhere along the trail, and they say, wait a minute, and off they go. In terms of how people often think of meditation, I mean, people think of it as kind of a restful, you know, peaceful, relaxing thing. And in terms of the art that you create, it, it tends to be, some of it tends to be dark and disturbing. I'm wondering if you see a contrast between kind of your meditation and, and the artwork that you create. Yes. <laughs> Most art reflects the world in which we live. That's, the, that's a lot of the ideas come from seeing the world and feeling the world. And stories have contrast and conflict, and that's what makes them stories. And, you know, meditation is that, that you can lose your own negativity and suffering and still be able to show suffering, actually have more understanding of suffering, more understanding of bliss, more understanding of all the things in life. And then you can really go to work and do a story and get more depth, more understanding of it, and, you know, and, and, and to get deeper into a world. So, but the artist doesn't have to suffer. In fact, suffering and negativity cramp the artist. They narrow the mind. Those negative things are the mind control. Anger controls the mind. Hate controls the mind. Depression controls the mind. And when you start diving within and experiencing this pure consciousness and it starts expanding, that heavy, heavy weight starts lifting of negativity. And it's a beautiful experience. And it's money in the bank. So you don't feel that your films need to kind of advocate openly? No. 
Yeah, that's a message film. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get an idea that shows some quality of it, you know, and you fall in love with that idea, then you go. But those ideas that you fall, you're you are you, and I am me, and we 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 fall in love with different things. It's just the doing becomes so much more fun, and and the and the and the things that used to kill you get less and less and less powerful. Mm-hmm. And you brought up your film Mulholland Drive, and that film and also uh, Eraserhead in particular, too, are films that really feel kind of like a stream of consciousness. And I'm wondering if you feel that meditation helps you connect better to that sensibility artistically. It, you know, it, it, you expand the container of knowledge, consciousness, the ability to understand. So you can, you can catch ideas... I, I still think there's something about one's likes and dislikes that dictate a lot, because the ideas pass through the machinery of you on the way to translating them into cinema. So it's the idea, the translator, and the end product. Um, this, this thing of cinema can show abstractions, and I love abstractions. I love stories, but stories that hold abstractions. And there's a language to film. There's a thing about a sequence, about using time and, and pace, and, and, and it's a magical language, uh, cinema. And I like ideas that somehow that kind of cinema can do. Now, I've read that Eraserhead was one of Kubrick's favorite films. Did, was, was that true? This is a beautiful story, and it's true. In the 1979, I think a team of guys that were working with George Lucas went out to Elstree Studio in London, and they met Kubrick, and Kubrick was talking to him, and he said, how would you fellas like to come up to my house tonight and see my favorite film? And they, of course, said, we would like that very much, and he showed them a racer head. Oh, nice. <laughs> now, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your childhood. I mean, I've heard that you, you grew up in a very happy, normal, middle-class kind of family. Exactly right. And, happy and normal. And, I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of surface that a lot of your films kind of put up, and then you see something darker behind that. Exactly. And what's that fascination for you? Well, you know, the thing is that... This is, it's all the surface, and, you know, when you see a facade, you, you feel something or other behind that facade, and it's a beautiful thing in life. It's like you're in the theater, and there's the curtains, and then it's so beautiful when those curtains open up, and, and you go into a world. Now, you know, after Blue Velvet, you know, um, some time went by, but now there's so many TV shows that show this kind of horror, you know, and that kind of horror and this kind of horror. Always it was going on. The world is in bad shape, and more and more these things are coming to light. And in a way, the solutions aren't there, but the problems are being known by everyone, and that stresses us all ten more times. So... If people know that they have a treasury in their basement, this is a beautiful thing to know. And if they know the way to go and open the door to that treasury and start enjoying it, that's a beautiful thing to know. And then it's up to them whether they want to visit the treasury or not.
Well, you bring up some of the stuff that's being covered now on TV, but what what's always been so interesting about your films is, you know, unlike some of these TV shows which focus on the dark side or on horror or on crime, your films have always been interested in that dark side, but mainly as it kind of contrasts with a brighter kind of you're a beautiful surface. you're a beautiful soul, and and this is the thing of a, of a story. There's there's if if it's all dark. It doesn't work. If it's all light, it doesn't work. A story holds many, many things, many, many different characters, and each one is, is going along, and how they intertwine, all these things are so beautiful. With your films, a lot of times, I think people or censors or the MPAA board, when they've dealt with them, always seem to have a hard time kind of putting their finger on precisely what disturbs them. And so they, they can't tell you, well, if you take out this two seconds, we'll give you the, you know, PG rating. And I was just wondering how you react to that. Well, I, I love those people because they truly, they don't want to hurt a film. And yet they have these rules. So a lot of times, and you've heard this before with other directors, they work with you. And and they and they say, gee, we 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 they say what you just said, and they say maybe if you just tone down that one thing or something, we'd be happy, and 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 it would go like that. But it seems like when something like Blue Velvet came out, that they had a really hard time saying what it was that bothered them, but they knew there was something really disturbing about that film. Yes. <laughs> Is there any character in your films that you feel you identify with? That, that seems most Well, likely. I always liked a- Agent Cooper, but I think I sort of identify with, you know, I, I, in a way, I like them all, and um, they're important to the story. So I, I, I really kind of get a, a love for uh, Frank Booth uh, as well. Well, it just seems like some of the things I've read about you, that you were an Eagle Scout and, and this, that you, you seem in tune kind of with some of Kyle MacLachlan's characters that you've created. R- right. In Blue Velvet and in Twin Peaks. I would say so. Your films are so very different from so much of what we see in mainstream cinema. And I'm just wondering if, if you see anything that contributes to that as, as to why. Because, you know, if you set out to be different, usually it, it becomes very awkward You and never artificial. be different for different sake. Mm-hmm. It comes from the idea. And if you catch ideas, you see them. Just as almost, it's not like seeing a movie, but if it's like finding a seed and seeing the tree in the seed, sort of. You know it's got to go through a translation to be a, a film, but, but when you actually get an idea, you sort of see it and feel it and hear it. It's, it's all there in, in a sort of idea form. And then you unravel it and put it into words for a script, and then you turn that into cinema. And so it's a process, but it's all the idea. And I say it's like a cook. The cook doesn't make the fish, but the cook can cook it in a very creative way and make a beautiful meal out of it. Blue Velvet is going to be showing this weekend here in San Diego. And I just want to ask you, it's been almost 20 years since the film came out, and I was wondering how you feel about it now and, and about its longevity. Well, I haven't seen Blue Velvet for a while. I, I hope it, it still holds up. You know, uh, um, when a film is finished, you, you say it's finished because it feels correct to you at that time. And, and I think it would, it would be okay now for me. Do you still have good feelings for it? That was one of your favorites, wasn't it, of your own work? Well, I, 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 I really kind of love all my films except <laughs> Dune. And, um, you know, I, I love the experience of, of doing them. Mm-hmm. Now, when you made Blue Velvet, it was during the, the Reagan and the senior Bush 
uh, error. And we were being fed kind of a certain image of America. And I'm just wondering if you think there's certain things about current events and the, the current times that may make audiences react again to Blue Velvet. Always, you know, the world, you know, is an influence. And art changes as the world changes. It always has. And um, so uh, there's the world, and then there's the person, and then there's the film. And it all kind of swims together and and makes it um, a certain thing. Like, I'm always amazed that the number of frames in the film are always the same. Each frame is the same for every screening, and yet every screening is different, and it depends on the viewers. And the viewer is influenced by the world. So it's, 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 it's all together. And that, that brings up this thing of consciousness and the unified field, that ocean of consciousness, the unified field that modern science discovered just 30 years ago. And it's a field of unity, and at that fundamental level, we're all one. Mm-hmm. And, and up on the surface, we're all different. And diving within and experiencing that oneness, pure consciousness, unfolding that, really gives the feeling, it gives the, you know, the reality that we are all one. And you, you, you see friends and not enemies. And relationships improve. And, you know, so many things come from it that are so positive. It's an ocean of creativity, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. You know, creative intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing to unfold, to expand. It's been a number of years since you've come out with a feature film, and I'm wondering if part of that reason is is that you have dedicated more time to this Lynch Foundation. No, it's because I haven't got any ideas. (laughs) (laughs) you got to get an idea. And after you finish a film, there's a vacuum, you know, and then you go along... And more often than not, ideas start coming, you know, that, it, that you fall in love with and it leads you on to the next one. But you do, so, have, you do have a new one, Inland Empire, coming out soon? Right. This, I'm working on that now. And this is the first film you've shot digitally, is that correct? Yep, all digital. And have you enjoyed that process? Love it. I'm through with film. <laughs> a lot of people, because your films tend to be complex, a lot of people tend to, I think, come at you with questions of, you know, what does your film mean? What does this mean? But you seem to have been fairly refused to, yeah, refused to do that. You don't do commentaries on your DVDs, and your DVDs sometimes don't even have chapter stops. Why do you do that? Do you feel you, do you want the, the film? The film is the most important thing. And I say you work so hard to get a film to be a certain way, and then people want you to change that back into words. And if your language is, if, you, if the whole thing is the language of film, so it should be seen and and as a as a a film and and all the things are there that are necessary at least in the mind of the filmmaker and so then you you and and then people have the freedom to interpret it you know and come up with their own answer on their own in their own way and that's a beautiful thing well, I think, you don't want to fiddle with that. Yeah, I think Kubrick was another filmmaker who he refused to answer questions about 2001. He said, you know, people need to figure it out on their own. Exactly. And it's a, it's, it's a fun thing. We're not, you know, so used to it. But every film has a, some little amount of abstraction, and, and you, you understand it. And then if it gets more abstract, you still understand it, but maybe you just don't trust that understanding so much. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I just recently had a chance to interview both David Cronenberg and and Clive Barker. And what strikes me about both of them and, and also about you is all three of you are able to create these kind of very disturbing images on the screen. And yet in speaking with you, all three of you seem so kind of well-balanced and and pleasant and so, you know, well-centered. And I'm just interested in that contrast between the art and the, the artist. Well, you know, it's, um, as I said maybe earlier, you don't have to suffer to show, to understand suffering or to, you know, show um, a story with it in it. So for me, I've, I've seen this anxiety that I had and anger I had and fears that I have start lifting over the years. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, experience. Do you think part of your fascination with some of that darkness is that you did grow up with such kind of a normal, happy childhood and that the contrast between what you grew up with and then what you started to see as you grew older was startling or impressing you in some way? Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, in, in there's no, you know, idyllic setting, no matter what time it is these days. So, but I did visit uh, New York City quite frequently when I was very small because my grandparents lived there. And that, that was a huge contrast and a huge ball of fear to me. Okay, well, I think I got everything I wanted to ask you, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you. Okay, take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. That was David Lynch from a 2005 interview. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. You can check out my summer preview on our sister podcast, KPBS Midday Edition. And remember, if you're in San Diego, Landmark's Ken Cinema is screening Fire Walk With Me just in time to catch the next installment of Twin Peaks The Return on Showtime this weekend. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.